This is the word of God from Deuteronomy 8. We'll read the first 18 verses. Moses says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which, which just means it's the Hebrew word for provision, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, or man does not live self-sufficiently, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing didn't wear out. Your feet didn't swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. These are desert people, by the way. They've just been in the Sinai Desert, which has nothing in it. He says, the Lord your God is leading you into a good land full of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and the hills. It's a land of wheat and barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land uh, that has industry and raw materials, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper And you, in this land, you will eat and be full. And you will bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Take care then. Take care when you get there, lest you forget forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and your belly is full and you've built good houses and you live in them, And when your herds and your flocks multiply, your business is doing great, your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then lest your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of slavery in the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power, I I did it, my power, my might, my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the great physician. You are the light. You are the resurrection. You are the life. I am nobody. I am nothing. So would you speak through weakness to your people? Would you, the shepherd, speak to your sheep tonight? Make them know that they have heard from the voice of you. Pray that your word would penetrate past all the stuff in our eyes and our ears and our hearts that keeps it out so often. Swing that sword, divide our hearts, 
Get your word, your life-giving word into us, down to our bones, we pray in your name. Amen. So that was a long passage. Uh, We'll take a look at that uh, piece by piece, but I want to tell you a story. It's a 23-hour drive from Las Cruces, New Mexico to Laguna Beach Christian Retreat Center in Panama City Beach, Florida. 23-and-a-half-hour drive, uh, to be exact, And uh, because it's such a long trip, uh, we always would gather all the students together uh, two days before conference even started. We'd meet in the parking lot of the church before the sun got up about 6 a.m. And uh, because it was going to be a 23 and a half hour drive over two days, and because we had three 15 passenger vans and 45 people, do the math, every seat taken, because that is what life was going to be like for us in the near future, uh, I gathered people up and we had the it's about to get real speech. Um, and because we had a variety of people who had been around a while and then some newer people who might not know everybody as well, we kind of just set expectations. We said, look, um, every seat's taken. This is two days, 12 hours in this thing. Um, we need to pray. Just be gracious to your neighbor. They're going to get on your nerves at some point. Be patient. Just be aware uh, when you get agitated and that kind of thing, uh, so we can get through this. Um, on top of the 23 and a half hour drive over two days, we also slept on the floor of uh, this church in Houston in their big youth wing uh, that night and uh, in San Antonio on the way back. And all 45 of us uh, had to, there was one shower in that church, like one little shower stall. And we got in about 10 o'clock, and we had to be on the road the next day at like 5 in the morning. And so uh, we're already tired. We're going to have to get up early. And 45 of us are in line uh, for this shower uh, at these churches uh, where we stayed. And on top of that, by the time we got to conference, we'd consumed six straight fast food meals and two back-to-back days of gas station coffee and pastries, or whatever those are that they sell there. And the cherry on top of this like misery pie was the freshman. It was always the freshman. Sorry if you're a freshman. I might expect more out of you, but had not yet learned the life hack that it is possible to both study for finals and shower each night of the week. And so they were showing up Saturday morning uh, like six days deep into a funk that uh, just this humid, wafty thing in the vans that was there after, like, after the first, we stopped the first time like two hours into the trip, and I was like, oh, this is going downhill, if this is how we're starting. That's what the road trip to summer conference uh, was like uh, on the way there and uh, the way back after a week there. And here's the thing. The road trip to summer conference every year drew out everybody's hearts. So whatever was in your heart, uh, whatever was inside of you got drug outside of you for everybody to see and have to deal with both good and bad and harder stuff. And so if you have a little bit of impatience in your heart, guess what came out on that road trip? If you had a quick temper, uh, if you had insecurities, maybe about your weight, or maybe you have a medical condition that means you've got to have quick bathroom stops, uh, that got drawn out too, and other people uh, had to deal with. Social anxiety, if you're a super opinionated person who just has to share every thought, All of that stuff uh, came out over those two back-to-back 12-hour drives 
uh, on the way to summer conference. Whatever was inside your heart got drug outside of your heart. Which meant this. Uh, my perception of people uh, before summer conference and after never lined up. So I came into the trip with this idealized version of, uh, of a lot of students and my interns and myself. And then driving back, it was like, okay, we actually know each other now. Um, and like, that's not Jennifer, that's Jennifer. And that's like, that's Josh. And I know all about Josh now. And, and uh, my interns I'm seeing in a whole new light. And they're seeing me in a whole new light. Um, and it's humbling. It's humbling because you don't get to do the facade anymore. And you don't get to pretend. And you don't get to project idealized you. In that kind of a situation where you're sleeping on the floor together, in the van together, every seat taken for two days straight to get there. But here's the surprising thing about that road trip, too. In retrospect, after the PTSD had worn off when people got back to Cruces, uh, uh, years later, we didn't ever have to recruit really hard for summer conference. We didn't have to sell it, like have these like gimmicks to get people to go. Our vans filled out. We had to turn people away every year. The students, they would tell you their favorite part of summer conference was the road trip. Blew my mind. Like, they love summer conference, but they're like, you got to go just for the drive. And the reason why is because, uh, especially newer people who didn't know the group, they would get in those vans, and as, for as hard as it was, and it, for all the stuff I've been talking about, they also, it was incredibly bonding for obvious reasons, right? You actually get to know the real person sitting next to you. Not this projected image, this manufactured image of themselves. And they get to know the real you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for better, for worse. And so it was actually uh, the, the, probably the most powerful bonding event we had all year long there that, that a group full of strangers leaves and a group full of people who feel like they've known each other their whole lives comes back because that trip drew out your heart. It drew out what was inside, and it was a real person having to relate to another real person. Here's the thing. Wilderness, which is the word that Deuteronomy uses, kind of a synonym for exile or suffering or trial or hardship, whatever, you, whatever label fits best for you. Wilderness does the same thing. Wilderness takes whatever's inside of your heart and it brings it outside of your heart for everybody else to see and react to and deal with, and for you to see too. That's what wilderness does. And the, the, the way wilderness does that is it deprives you of the ordinary things you have in your life every day that make life safe, predictable, comfortable, easy. Right? Imagine being in that van, and you are not in control of how often or where you stop for the restroom. You're not in control of how often or where we stop for food. You're not in control of when or if you'll get a shower that night. I mean, just those little creature comfort things, life's already gotten hard. You can imagine how your heart would express itself in that moment, right? Grumbling or like, I can't believe I signed up for this or whatever. Or I'm getting in the front of the line. The real you is revealed when the regular, like the props, the pillars that we all build under ourselves to make life stable, predictable, controllable when those things are taken away, when your schedule is messed with or inconvenienced, when you don't get much sleep, you're running on three hours of sleep, 
when a friend doesn't, um, but basically doesn't do what you want them to, or a boyfriend or a girlfriend doesn't relate to you the way you expected or wanted, and those little pillars and props are knocked out from under you, we start shaking, right? And whatever's inside comes outside. I tell you uh, these stories uh, because I really do think that story of that summer conference road trip is a really close parallel to exactly what, what was happening in this passage in Deuteronomy 8, or the account that, this, that that passage records. Except it was worse, because their road trip was, uh, was 39 years, 11 months, uh, and 28 days longer, and two less hot showers than ours. But same kind of thing. God had been leading his people out of Egypt 40 years prior, for 40 years. Now, there's this little throwaway line in uh, early chapters of Deuteronomy that says it's an eight-day journey uh, from, uh, from Sinai to Canaan. From where uh, God parted the waters and drowned the Egyptian army and the Jews passed through, eight-day walk. That had to have been just devastating information for the Jews when they heard that because it, well, it took us 40 years if you, you can track this, if you have a study Bible or something, you can track their, their route, and it's just circles in the Sinai Peninsula. The scenery every few years was very familiar. How, wait, I, I know we've been at this mountain before. So it's the same thing with, with the thing, and, and what God is doing there, too, is he is drawing out their hearts, and it's real people having to deal with other real people. And wilderness is marked by everything this passage says it's marked by, which is scarcity. Did you catch that word when it was in the passage? He's saying the promised land, there will be no scarcity, which means where you are now, there is scarcity, which means not enough. There are things like dangers and threats. Specifically, the passage mentions hunger and testing and discipline and lacking, which means this. What is wilderness? If you haven't jumped in yet and seen how this is hitting your life, let's try one more time. What's wilderness? Wilderness is any place when you're wondering, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I got here. I don't know where God is. I don't know what's next. I don't know where to go. Uh, Wilderness is any time you're wondering, is this how it's supposed to be? Is this how it's supposed to feel? That's wilderness. Wilderness is any time you're feeling, I don't have what it takes, or I don't know if I have what it takes to cut it, to get by. Life's falling apart. All of those props that I had to keep my comfort, to make tomorrow predictable and safe, to bring security, they're starting to shake. That's what wilderness is, which means it's a little bit different for all of us, right? For one person, it can mean you're a runner, you love the runner's high, the endorphins, and you did something to your knee, and now you can't run. And you're like, it's just a knee, it's just I can't take a run. But it's like life's falling apart now because I can't take a run every day. For some of you, that friend that you'd put a bullseye on, of they're going to be the one to acknowledge you and validate you and love you, really doesn't have time for you. And you're like, it's just a little friendship thing, but like life's falling apart now. Or a grade, or something else is making life unpredictable. And there's scarcity, and there's hunger, and there's lack... And there's stuff coming out of your heart you might have never known was there. And it's catching you off guard, maybe. 
That's what uh, wilderness is called. We call it different things today. We call it depression sometimes. We call it a dark night of the soul. Or we call it a hard season or a, or a crisis of faith. We don't call it wilderness. The Bible does, but we call it other things. So real quick, uh, and I, I'll add this too. One more element of wilderness is this. Did you catch that two times Moses, any time in the Bible there's repetition, uh, these, these people were extremely sparing with their ink. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste a single drop of ink in the scriptures. Every word, every jot, every tittle is there strategically, intentionally. Moses twice tells us this manna, this food that God gave, we'll talk about it in a minute. He said, it was food, it was provision that your fathers did not know. Why? God's provision for you in those seasons of wilderness was unprecedented, which means there was nobody you could talk to who's, who's already been through exactly what you've been through. Who can say, oh, just do this, this, and this, and it'll all be okay. Does that make sense? He said, you, I led you through something that nobody else has been through. Because if they had, you could have said, well, you know, our forefathers went through the same thing and they just did this, this, and this, so we just need to do this, this, and this. Which means navigating wilderness is never formulaic. There is no three-step guide to moving through those seasons of your life. Manna that your fathers did not know. Which means wilderness is a season that will either, it, it'll push you somewhere. It'll either push you greater into faith and dependence upon the Lord. My forefathers never, no one I know has been through this. There's no one I can call and, and they can say, yeah, me too. It, it, I feel like I'm the only one here. But the Lord is good. But he's for me. He's with me. It either pushes you more towards that or it pushes you more towards your faith in your own gut assessment. God's not good. He's not here. There's a bunch of bunk I grew up with. All this happy songs we sang at church growing up. Yeah, right. That's faith. That's, that's, that's living by faith, not by sight. It's not provable at all. It's, it's, it's putting all of your eggs in the basket of your own gut. Wilderness will catapult you to one of those two places. Moses knows it. That's why he's having this little speech on the side of the river before the people go into the promised land. So really quickly... We've talked about what wilderness is. We've talked about what it feels like. How do we get into it, though? It's a fair question, right? Some of you are like, crap, I don't think I've been there yet. Is this coming? Yes, but how do we get into it? Or better yet, I guess we should ask, how did these people get into it? So we can look back down at the passage. How did these people, the Jews in this moment, how did they get into it? Uh, This is what uh, verse 2 says. Uh, the, uh, Moses is um, talking to the people and he says, You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Now he's not just saying the way God led you in the wilderness, like, well, once you got there, he showed up and helped you. But God led you into the wilderness too, didn't he? Fair enough, right? He parted the seas and go that way. He didn't just lead you in the wilderness. He led you into the wilderness. The verse right after that uh, says as much as well, that he lets you hunger. He didn't just show up when you got hungry and he said, God, I'm hungry. And he's like, oh, oh, okay, let me stop doing this. You're hungry. Let me feed you. He said he led you into hunger. 
He led you into wilderness. He led you into hunger. Really quickly, this doesn't mean that every time we have a bad day or a hard season, that it's like God manipulating events to hurt us. It doesn't mean that God is responsible for putting us in all of these places. A lot of times, if you're like me, I get to where I am because of my own foolish decisions, my own dullness, my own disobedience. But it means even in situations where it's your fault, you are where you are because of you. It means even in that place, all of what we read here is true and good. Because why, why are the Jews here for 40 years and not eight days? You remember? Because they grumbled. They blasphemed God and they said, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden, the devil's our father, God's the devil. He's a murderer. He's a life giver. We'll follow him. And we'll reject him. That's why. And so it was, it was discipline. It was punishment. It was, it was refining that they were left in the wilderness. God was, was spending more time working with them in the wilderness because of what was in their heart. But even still, look how much he took care of them in the wilderness. Even though it was their fault, they were there. Some of you are at a place you never thought you'd be. You did something you never thought you were capable of. And, and, and you feel all alone there, and you hear this stuff, and you're like, well, all the good stuff he's saying doesn't apply to me because I got me here, and i got to get me out. The Jews got themselves into this predicament, and they didn't get themselves out. Their God did. He showed up in the midst of their discipline, in the midst of their bad decisions. He showed up. And he worked in that place, and he led them out. So it means even in the darkest place you might have stumbled into or gotten yourself into, God is there too. Okay, that's how we get into wilderness. Sometimes uh, just our own decisions or or life circumstances. Sometimes it's just more direct like this. God takes us by the hand and leads us there. Some horrible tragedy happens. Some emotional thing happens. You've always been a happy person, but... You're experiencing what life is like as, as, as a depressed person now, and you just don't feel. You, don't, you can't get out of bed in the morning. And it, it seems more like, God, what are you doing? Well, if that's what wilderness is and how we get into it, why is it necessary? Why does it have to hurt? Why does the, why does the Christian life, why does growing as a Christian have to hurt? Why can't it be more linear? Why can't you go to a freshman Bible study or a, or a girls' Bible study and learn the formula, the three disciplines, that if you do these, you'll have a suffering-free life and, and you'll know God and you'll be this amazing person of faith? Why doesn't that work? Here's why. Because wilderness is indispensable to reshaping you and reforming you into a, a human being into a son or a daughter of God. We'll, we'll talk in a, in a second as we wrap up about Jesus. God takes all of his sons and daughters to the wilderness to form them, to test them, to grow them, Jesus included. It's an indispensable place of growth and of forming. We can't do without it. Here's why. This is verse uh, 11 through maybe 15 or 17. Let me read this to you one more time. This is what happens apart from wilderness, scarcity, lacking, whatever, whatever words you want to attach to wilderness. This is what will happen 
when life is just easy peasy, coasting along, everything is happening the way you want it, you're killing it. This is what will happen. People have not changed in thousands of years. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his statutes. Lest when you have eaten and your belly is full and you've built good houses and you've lived in, which is the American dream, if you can get a house and fill it with groceries and have financial security, when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold is abundant, all that you have is more than it used to be. Then your heart will be lifted up and you, uh, and you forget the Lord your God who saved you, who rescued you, who delivered you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. That is the direction my flesh pulls me in when life gets easy. Are you, are you with me here? Does your heart do that too? Because mine does. The seasons when everything is great, uh, you know, everything. Relationships are great. Work is great. Health is great. Money is great. It's just great. Um, man, without fail, if, 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 if God is like a, a dimmer switch, it's like the dimmer switch gets turned down. It just gets dimmer and dimmer. I still go to church and I still do the God talk and everything. I still believe and I still have faith, but my, my, that living vibrant sense of his goodness and his presence is dimmed down. That's what happens apart from this kind of shaping and forming in the wilderness. So, do you remember 2012? It's Romney versus Obama in the presidential campaign. Barack Obama says these fateful words in some town hall, and it goes viral, and it starts protests around a lot of the country. He said these words. If you... If you've got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. I don't know if you remember this, but social media was going nuts. Uh, Romney clobbered him about it in the next debate. It was this huge to-do. Because all these people were saying, who are you to tell me I didn't build this business? It's my own blood, sweat, and tears that's the reason I have what I have. It's the American work ethic. What he was saying, because he clarified it later, is you didn't build that alone. Who built the roads to get your product to market? Who built the economic systems that created a market? How many employees do you have who gave up their time and their lives to help you get that? Would you be as successful in a country that perhaps like a socialistic country where the government gets its 50% cut? He was saying so many people had to invest in that system for you to be successful. You didn't build that alone. And in particular, conservatives went nuts. And I, I think this is, this is a moment where he said something so true, it pissed us off. Because we are schooled in a culture, especially here, that says, build it. Make it happen. Personal success, personal achievement, get it done. And that's what we project out to people. I built it. This is the very thing Moses says too. Lest you say in your heart, my strength. I didn't get diabetes like my cousin because I run every day. No, that's not why you don't have diabetes. You don't have that because Jesus has spared you that suffering. 
man, I got to buy a house three years after college because I'm actually diligent and I saved money. No, 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 no. Yes, God might have worked through that. But you've been raised, your whole life there's been supports and mechanisms to enable you to save that money, to discipline you, to raise you that way, or people just giving you money, whatever. You didn't build that. God says the ability to get wealth is a gift from him. Everything we have in our lives, every personality trait, every blessing, every relationship, every tangible object is the mercy of the living God given to you freely. And Moses says, your heart is so prone to forget that and to get to a place where I made it happen. I got that internship. I was the wise one who saw that thing coming and avoided it, but all my classmates walked right into it. We have, we have proud and lifted up mentalities about ourselves, don't we? I do too. This is where this passage kind of nails us to the wall and says it sees us. It exposes us. <clears throat> so wilderness brings us into these seasons that humbles us and quiets us. Which is kind of nice because it, it makes us a little bit more restful, a little bit less stir-crazy. And why, why wilderness? To, to increase your dependence upon the Lord. Because your heart is not prone to dependence on the Lord in, in prosperity. In seasons where you're killing it, you've hit your stride, it's all great. Your heart goes the opposite direction. And so God, in his kindness and in his mercy, will start turning the dials in your life and in your circumstances to produce some difficulty. To draw you back to himself. To humble you. To increase your dependence and to bring you back to sanity. And that's what he's doing in this passage. So let's get specific here. What were the, th- what were the things that the Israelites, the Jews, were, were? what props had they built to make life safe, predictable, all that kind of stuff? To make life work. What did they learn to do? Uh, the first thing was, was predictability. They, like you, didn't want to live paycheck to paycheck. They wanted a bank account. They wanted insurance. And that's why they struggled so much with the manna stuff. God, you remember the story? He, manna spoiled after 24 hours. And there was never a two-day allotment except on the Sabbath, right? When he said, I don't want you gathering on the Sabbath, so I'm going to put two days of provision. But if it's a Monday, you're never getting Wednesday's bread on a, on a Monday. You're getting Monday's bread. You eat it. Whatever's left over spoils. You've got to wake up again on Tuesday and trust your Father in heaven to feed you. And God said he did this to teach you. Dependence isn't a bad thing. Weakness isn't bad. You were made by your maker to come alive in weakness, to come alive in dependence. You were made by your maker to be on a short leash to him. And he says it's a good thing, and that's how he teaches us. The Jews, like you and like me, loved security. They wanted a refrigerator. They didn't want to wake up the next day and say, i got to trust God again i got to feel weak again tomorrow. The Jews wanted omniscience. They wanted to know what tomorrow was going to bring. They wanted to know, uh, am I going to be in a job that has anything to do with my current major? They wanted to know, is this girl I'm dating going to be my wife? Is this guy going to be my husband or not? I'd love to know now where this relationship's going. They want to know. 
the future now. They want omniscience and they want comfort. Just like us, right? Just like me, they want comfort. These are the specific things, right, that God is going to these specific places where they have kind of replaced him. And he's pushing those things out ever so gently, not maliciously, but gently and strategically to reveal their hearts. So friends, wherever the props are that you've put up under your life, that's the specific place that you can expect the God who loves you and is freeing you from yourself to push those places in your life where you have propped up to make yourself omniscient, to get clarity, to make yourself stronger, to make yourself uh, live in a controllable, predictable world. That's where he will introduce you to the real you. Sometimes it isn't pretty. But that's where he will introduce you to the real him. You remember I told you that story about summer conference, that, that what people loved, they felt bonded and drawn together because it was, we're dealing with the real you and the real me now. There's no pretense, there's no more, you have some opinion of me that's not true. Like you saw the real me and you learned how to love it or deal with it or relate to it. It's not just that God takes you to wilderness to expose the real you and kind of slap your wrist and say, do better next time. He brings you into wilderness to reveal to you the real him. And this is where he, all of these warped suspicions we have about God, he bends back to straight so that we might rejoice in him again, have hope in him again, love him again. And this is where this gets really, really, really honest. Because he says in these, what did the Jews think God was really like? They thought he was forgetful and absent-minded. That's why they didn't want to wait on manna. What if he didn't show up on Tuesday? They thought that God was not attentive to the details of their story. Did you catch the weirdest detail of all in the passage? Moses expends ink to tell us that their shirts didn't get holes and their, bl- their feet didn't get blistered. You know how much money is spent on R&D for textiles that won't wear out after a year? For 40 years, the Jews' clothes didn't wear out and their feet didn't blister, which was what they needed walking all day, every day, through a desert. Clothes to protect them. Feet that don't sidetrack them, sideline them. God cared for his people to the level of detail of the thread count of their shirts to the level of detail, to the hot spots on their feet that he kept from becoming blisters. Do you see how in the wilderness you meet the real God too? He's not this inattentive, distant, indifferent, doesn't care about the details of where you're at right now. He cares about it down to the molecular level. And this passage even says that. And he's not out to deprive us and crash us in the end, but to do us good in the end. That is what he's saying here. Look, uh, I wanted to share a few stories with you for the sake of time. Uh, maybe I'll just do one, but I'll, just to kind of bring this down to earth. Um, it was during two of my three years as an RUF intern here that I'd say were two of the hardest and most confusing and uncomfortable years of my life. I'd been a Christian about one year before this started. I had a, was a little honeymoon period where things were easy and cool. And I was like, man, this is going to be awesome. And then year two and three come up, and... Um, I, I, was a, I was and still am, but more than, very emotion-driven person, feelings-driven person. If I felt like God was distant and absent, he was distant and absent. 
If I felt condemned and guilty, I was condemned and guilty. If I felt he was indifferent or not powerful enough to fix me, he was not powerful and he was indifferent. I was living by sight. Whatever I felt was truth. So for two years, Jesus gently and carefully breaks me. How did he do it? He led me to hunger. He led me into emotional scarcity. He pushed that prop out because I wasn't trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his grace and his power and his love for me. I was trusting in my perception of those things. My faith was in the level of my faith. It's a very different thing than in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, very kindly and gently, for two years, I had very little sense of his presence. As an intern, very little sense of his goodness. I would share the gospel with people and go home begging that it would be true for me too, but with very little confidence that it was. I would weep myself to sleep some nights. And Jesus brought me through that time. He did me good in the end. He brought me to a promised land at the other side of that too. A more simple faith where he said, Ben, whether you feel me near or not, I am always near you. Whether you think I love you or not, I always, only, ever will love you. Whether you think I'm powerful or not, watch me, watch me. He led me to wilderness to humble me. To let me meet the real Ben, which is a scared man who didn't know his God very well. And he, and he revealed the real him to me in that place. And he's continued to do that in many other areas of my life. But he will for you as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, this is a long passage. There's a lot in here. Um, we thank you that, uh, above all else, I thank you that um, this isn't just some tips for living in the wilderness. We fail in the wilderness. We fail this week in the wilderness. We are thankful that there is one who has lived in the wilderness righteously, with holiness, one who did depend on his father when scarcity came, one who did not suspect your father of evil, but trusted him. And we thank you that you have given us your record in the wilderness, and you took upon yourself our record in the wilderness, and we lived the the blessing, and you live the curse. Pray that you would refine us, make us new, make us more like you in the places wherever my friends are right now, places of scarcity, places of anxiety. Meet us there and grow us, we pray in your name. Amen.